This is Joel Kotkin. And this is Marshall Toplansky. And you're listening to the Feudal Future Podcast. Our society is being rapidly reduced to a feudal state, a process now being exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic. Millions of small businesses are near extinction. Millions more are losing their jobs. And many others will be stuck in the status of propertyless serfs. The big winners have been the expert class of the clerisy, and most of all, the tech oligarchs, who benefit as people rely more on algorithms than human relationships. With this, around the world, the middle class is becoming more squeezed than ever, and it's having profound economic, social, and spiritual implications. Here on the show, we're having conversations with business, government, and citizen leaders like you to get to the core of these issues and explore how we can work together to form a better future than the one we're headed towards. Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the Feudal Future Podcast. I'm Marshall Toplansky. I'm Joel Kotkin. And today we're going to talk all about labor and the labor shortage that has been touted in America during uh, this almost post-COVID period. We have three interesting panelists with us today to talk about it from different perspectives. We have Robin Domber, who is Vice President of Research at Development Counselors International. She joined DCI uh, in 2011 after more than 13 years of working in the economic development and site selection consulting field. Michael Burnick uh, practices law in the area of uh, employment and labor law. He advises uh, employers on issues related to uh, employer taxes, unemployment insurance, uh, disability insurance. He was previously uh, director of California's Employment Development Department, the EDD, the 10,000-person State Department of Labor. And finally, Lane Windham. Lane is associate director of Georgetown University's uh, Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor and co-director of the Will Empower Women Innovating Labor Leadership. Uh, she's author of uh, Knocking on Labor's Door, Union Organizing in the 1970s and the Roots of the New Economic Divide. And she works very closely with our longtime friend, John Russo. Panelists, welcome. Thank you. Well, welcome. Okay. Oh. I'm thrilled that we we can deal with this issue now, and hopefully um, there'll be areas of agreement and disagreement. But let's just start off right now. There's a huge amount of talk, and you hear it from business people all the time, can't get talent. And that goes everywhere from the highest end to, you know, you know who's going to work in the restaurant. Um is this a temporary phenomena or is this something we're going to be dealing with in the next decade? Anyone want to start with that? So Joel, I can jump in. Um, So I do think that there were a number of factors that came into play as a result of COVID that sort of forced people out of the workforce um, in terms of, you know, childcare issues, um, you know, just economic instability, other things. But in the long run, there is this demographic drought that's happening. Um, you know, we just know that the, due to demographics, that there are not going to be as many people entering the workforce. We're going to have more people exiting the workforce. And that's putting um, communities and employers in a really tough position, um, trying to figure out not only these short-term solutions to address some of those things that did arise out of COVID, but also just these longer demographic trends. 
Uh, Lane or Michael, you have something to add to this? Sure, I'll jump in. Um, You know, uh, I agree with Robin that there is, uh, there were a lot of shifts, obviously, that happened during COVID. I think what we're seeing here now, though, is, is this a labor shortage or is this a wage shortage? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, it depends on your point of view. <laughs> and we have had in this country uh, a model, a low wage, low benefit model for 40 years. Uh, and employers have been making uh, employment and business models based on that, uh, that low wage model. And I think that though this particular crisis and this sort of monthly employment numbers may change. I think what we are seeing is a long-term shift away from what's been happening for 40 years, uh, where workers have um, had to had no choice but to take these low-wage, no-benefit jobs with little security and uh, in which women were doing lots and lots of unpaid care in the home. Uh, and holding full-time paid work. I think we're seeing a paradigm shift coming out of the coronavirus, and I'm excited to talk about that today. Michael? Well, I think those are, uh, Robin and Lane have made good points. I would say two things, Joel, here in California. One, um, we we do have um, a case where employers, for the first time I've seen, and, and, and I go back um, almost as far as you, Joel. I go back to the, I started in the job field in a community job training group in 1979. So that we've had five recessions since that in California, and, and this recovery is very, very different. But um, because workers aren't coming back, and it's really you know four factors here in California. Um, there's the uh, as Robin mentioned, there's the um, schools closing and childcare. Um, there's lingering concern about health, real and imagined. Um, but there's also, and there's the unemployment supplement. Um, things will change in September. Whether we have a paradigm shift, I think is going to be the, a key question today, Joel. But um, uh, things I think will begin to change in September when the um, schools re- hopefully reopen. Childcare hopefully becomes more available. The $300 per week supplement ends. And um, I think we will see people coming back. But I do think that um, what Lane mentioned is a phenomenon for the first time I've seen in five recoveries since 1980. People are reconsidering at all levels. I think the pandemic created a shock to the system so that people are saying, um, do I want to go back? To what I was doing before. Well, and let me follow up on that because I, isn't that really at the end of the day a cultural issue? You know, are we are we seeing with the shift demographically toward a younger workforce? Are we shifting? Are we seeing a shift toward? Look, I, I want a different calculus between you know between my work life and my personal life. The the pandemic gave me a little hint about how flexible I can be in terms of getting my work done. And now, what do I need to be subject to all of these strictures and this, this structure? Is that happening? Yeah, Marshall, let me just jump in. On that, let me, and Joel, you probably remember, every single recession since 1980, every recovery, Marshall, people have said, commentators have come out and said, oh, the labor market will never be the same. Society will never be the same. 
And then within a short time, things go back to the way they were. The labor market has um, remained remarkably, remarkably stable. So I, I think we want to be a little bit careful, but I think it's also true that there's something going on now that we haven't seen before. You know, Michael, I would agree with that, um, but it's interesting to note that we've been doing um, we've been doing a research series since 2017 called Talent Wars, where we've been surveying um, working age residents across the United States on how they make relocation decisions. And you know, our presumption going in was that you know, it's quality of life is huge. That's how people choose where they're going to relocate to, and you know, work life balance and what we have consistently found since 2017 is it's all about the job. Um, people want to be assured if they are going to relocate that they are having a comparable, if not better, standard of living. And that revolves a lot around um, you know, salary, benefits, um, affordable housing. Those are the issues that we have seen since 2017 that have consistently risen to the top in terms of the most important factors in relocation decisions. So I think there's this very romanticized notion in terms of you know, people are going to completely rethink how they do work. But at the end of the day, they want to make sure that their standard of living is still something that they can um, you know, stand behind. Well, and Lane, let's jump in here, would you? Because this is an opportunity to talk about the changing nature of kind of a buyer sell, buyer's market versus a seller's market of labor. It right. seems to me it's the first time in a long time and that labor actually has the potential of making an inroad. Particularly um, as well as on the lower end, not just yeah. the higher end, which I think is what Robin um, mm-hmm. was referring to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, you know, going back to your question, Marshall, about whether there's a cultural change. It is partly about culture, you know, uh, but it's also about structure and policy. We have a structure and policy in this country where, for instance, restaurant workers are paid a sub-minimum wage of $2.13 an hour. $2.13 an hour, right? Plus tips. Uh, what that means is that that, that is a policy to that impacts uh, restaurant workers, most of whom are are women and people of color. Uh, And, you know, uh, the group One Fair Wage recently did a survey of restaurant workers who are out of work with the pandemic. 78%, eight out of 10 workers said that the thing that would make them come back to work is a higher wage, right? That's what they need. And Uh, You know, we have consistently uh, had policy which propped up the restaurant industry at the expense of women and people of color in this country. Is that a decision that we're going to continue to make? Is that I don't see that so much as cultural as I see that as a, a, a way in which patriarchy and racism is baked into the structures that we have underscoring our entire employment system. Uh, and you would have to admit that that white male servers are in the same situation. They are. But if you look at the uh, statistics in restaurant work, white males servers consistently make more than women who tend to have, you know, the diner, the waitress jobs, right. the, low, the lower wage jobs. Well, I think there is a, um, you know, a, a, a differential um, between different segments of the labor market. And obviously, all of us, you know, have that concern. Joel, you write about it regularly concerning the um, 
you know, growth of low wage jobs and the presence of low wage jobs. And, um, and then the obvious question becomes what can be done? And that's where I think people, you know, there's the disagreement that we have. I think everyone acknowledges uh, one of the positive things about the post-pandemic economy so far is driving up wages to an extent, not to a great enough extent to, to make a significant difference, but it's driving up wages. That's positive in low-wage jobs. So I think that the challenge for all of us is what more can be done to, um, you know, to expand, to build up these jobs and, and build up middle class. I think we all agree that that's, you know, a key, key issue. And I do think that wages, you know, we are starting to see, essentially what I see when, when you have, you know, nearly 9 million jobs open in this country uh, and so many workers who are saying that, um, you know, they won't go back without a higher wage. I see that in a way as a very sort of slow moving general strike <laughs> in this country. And it's having an effect, kind of. Um, you know, uh, Michael, you might uh, have the, the latest statistics, but nationally, uh, average hourly rate wages rose 20 cents an hour in April, another 13 cents in May, 10 cents in June, right? So that's a 43 cent basically wage increase over three months. Meanwhile, the minimum wage, of course, in this country has been stuck at 725 since 2009 for 12 years. So workers essentially in this kind of low-moving, undeclared general strike are having an impact in terms of moving the needle on wages. Well, we're also seeing a migration of people to lower cost of living areas, recognizing that, you know, even a 40 cent an hour increase in wages is not enough to make a living in a high way, in a high cost area. What are you seeing, Robin, in terms of uh, employers rethinking their location strategies to accommodate movements of people to lower cost areas? You know, it's a it's a great question, and it's so sort of multifaceted because, as we know, um, the remote workforce has opened up so much in terms of employers, and you know they have so much greater access to employers basically from all over, or employees from all over the world. Um, so, you know, the location decisions um, that we are seeing is yes, talent still is the dominant factor. Um, it absolutely there absolutely has to be a workforce in order for. Um, employers to consider an area for relocation or expansion. Um, one thing we are seeing, though, particularly among um, more consumer-facing public companies is that the um, as a result of some of the diversity and inclusivity issues that have come up over the past year is in order to attract talent, um, they the company is just part of it. The community also has to be seen as welcoming to diverse talent, and so that has become increasingly more important in terms of the communities how they're how they're coming together to look at their short list of communities. They want to make sure that when they are trying to attract and recruit employees, that they're not only comfortable at the company, but at the, in the community itself as well. So I honestly feel that that's had a huge impact, um, again, particularly among a certain segment of companies. You know, Lane, you, had, you said something that really intrigued me there about the notion of a de facto general strike. Yeah. And as I was thinking about it, I was thinking, you know, this is, if this is a general strike, 
it's a general strike that has disintermediated the union. Uh-huh. The people are are striking and taking personal responsibility for withholding their labor, and in essence, negotiating with management on a non-collective way. Are you looking at it that way, or is, is it likely to be less successful because it's not part of an organized union and collective bargaining movement? Right. What's, what's your sense? Well, I mean, you know, workers, there have been a number of general strikes like this over the years, you know. Um, of course, uh, the massive uh, uh, movement of enslaved people away from the plantations after the Civil War is was seen in some for, by many people as a general strike, right? So there have been other kinds of disaggregated general strikes. But the question that you ask, I think, gets to, hey, what's happening with organized labor in this country? If workers are having this experience, why aren't the union numbers rising through the roof? Why aren't people forming unions left and right? And that really gets to the fact that we have broken labor law in this country. The labor law in this country um, is basically uh, is is so weak. Uh, There are no penalties when employers break the law. Uh, employers routinely violate workers' rights, fire workers, uh, threaten them when they try to form unions. Um, And so really what's happened to this country is that workers no longer have uh, a full right to form a union. And in fact, Human Rights Watch determined that in 2000, uh, that in this country, working people do not have an adequate right collective bargaining, freedom of association, and forming unions. And so why aren't people, uh, you know, forming forming unions left and right? It's because it's incredibly difficult in this country. Um, and again, I think this comes back to this question of, of policy and law uh, and the, the, the system that we have undergirding workers in this country. I'd like to just add a little bit to that, which is it's not just that it's difficult to organize, and obviously there's a big debate there. But like I was specifically thinking, Mike, Mike, Michael, maybe you could deal with this a little bit. What do you do with industries like technology, where there's been essentially no unionization for 50 years now, 40, 50 years? Um, is that going to change? It, what, I mean, you monitor what's going on in Silicon Valley. That's still kind of the leading element of the American economy. Um, I assume these wage pressures are there as well. Um, is, is there any chance that there'll be, there'll be some general striking in Silicon Valley? <laughs> well, I, it, Joe, there's always a lot of activity going on here in Silicon Valley. Labor unions are very active trying to, um, whether it's the, uh, Uber workers or Uber drivers or Amazon. I mean, there's a, a great deal of activity all the time. It just has um, yielded you know, results and for some of the reasons Lane mentioned. I, I do think there are two other dynamics though, Joel. One is um, how much this sort of general strike continues after September. Right now in California, if you're in a job that pays less than 29 or 30,000 a year, uh, you're doing better on unemployment insurance. Now, the positive is it gives people a chance to reconsider it. Um, it ho- hopefully, again, continues to drive up wages even more than Lane mentioned. 
but how much that's going to continue after, you know, this additional supplement ends in September, how much the reluctance for anyone who's, um, at least for those workers earning under 30,000 a year, um, I think is, is still up in the air. I think we will see some changes. Um, but again, I come back to, we all sort of agree what we need, you know, these lower wage jobs, that is the, to me, that's the central issue in the labor market and has been for the last decade or two. But um, how much, you know, the current post-pandemic after September will significantly change that, I think remains to be seen. Well, Ron, and, you know, you let's, let's, uh, let's look at this notion of the longer term. So I'm, a, I'm aware of a lot of initiatives in the AI and automated robotics space that management teams are engaged in to try to get low-end labor out of the picture. So, you know, I was just an article this past week about Flippy, the automated hamburger and french fry maker that's being tested in fast food stores right now. And so my question is, if we're moving into a world that is going to be characterized by AI, by algorithms making decisions rather than people, uh, by robots uh, replacing low-end labor, um, is this just kind of a lot of temporary noise that really, you know, obfuscates the bigger question of what are we going to do with all our people 10 years from now? That should stimulate something. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> so so um, this may not directly answer your question, but I, you know, some good news that came out of our research was when we asked working age um, individuals um, whether they would be willing to undergo additional training um, to increase their career opportunities, 80% said yes. They said, I would absolutely um, you know, engage in additional workforce training if it would improve, again, my standard of living and my um, job opportunities. But nearly a quarter of those said they had no idea how to go about doing it. Um, you know, they said, I just don't even know where to get access to that. So when we are working with economic development organizations, the most forward-thinking ones and the ones that are um, we really feel are looking towards the long-term and focused on success are those that are, um, you know, obviously doing talent attraction marketing, but also very, very focused on reskilling and upskilling. Um, they're very dedicated in terms of not only demonstrating what uh, uh, a new job could offer in terms of salary and, and career benefits, but also um, how to get there. So basically, what are these very specific open positions in their community? Where can they go to get that training? How long does that training take? And they want to make sure that there's a very clear path laid out So in order to, to address those quarter um, of the respondents that we heard that just said, I would love to do this, but I just don't know how to do it. So, you know, it's those forward thinking EDOs that I think have their eye on the long term and really, you know, how can we play this long game um, and make sure that we're setting our community and our residents up for success? Um, so Mar Marshall, I just I would just add, um, I'm a historian uh, and and, it, you know, in addition to doing the various labor work and, um, you know, history shows that time and time again, uh, 
you know, working people are constantly being sort of thrown out of work by technology, whether it's the person who used to make shoes by hand and then it became done on the assembly line, you know, uh, whether it's the, um, the secretaries who used to type on typewriters and now everybody uses their computers, right? It's, it's constantly that technology is, is changing the workforce is changing jobs. The key question to me isn't the future of work so much as it's the future of workers, right? So to, to what extent can we use policy? Can we use law? Can we ask the question, what does it take for working people to be able to maintain security, to be able to maintain communities, right? And what, what policies do we need to undergird workers um, in order to make that transition? Because it is not a natural process that just happens, right? It is determined by uh, the laws, the policies that we make. And we are perfectly capable of having wonderful technological changes that improve our lives, that mean an end to sweatshops, that mean an end to drudgery, and which uh, allow us to perhaps work fewer hours in the week. We, we can do that. But if we do it on the terms of um, the winner take all that we've been living under for the past 40 years, then we're going to basically end up undermining the entire system and our communities for everyone. Uh, but maybe if if we take some, what Lane is talking about, you know, let's say $15 an hour minimum wage, PRO Act, um, is there a negative side to that from a labor market point of view? Um, you know, if if let's say the cost to employers become too high, is, is that a potential um, problem? So is there, I understand what Lane is advocating, but the question is, is there a downside to that? Michael, maybe you might have thought a bit about that. Well, I think I think Lane is right that um, it's a wage shortage, much more than a skill shortage. Joel, I hear these people talk about skill shortage all the time. Yeah, there's some upskilling that needs to be done and so forth, but it's, um, you know, it's if you look at the jobs that we're going to need, even aside, Marshall, from the AI, but the job projections that BLS has done and it's really been pretty consistent for the past 20 years. Um, their home health aides, their retail clerks, their jobs that, um, you know, lower wage jobs. So I, I think it's it's a, a, a wage shortage. Um, you know, we, that's what we really need to focus on. Unfortunately, as you know, Joel, it's crazy here in California. Rather than focus on work, the whole discussion now is on guaranteed income. That's the way to solve AI, and that's the way to solve our job loss. It's not to ask the question, oh, how do we keep people working? It's how do we give people more benefits? People should be, during the pandemic, it's unbelievable. The, the focus of our state government is people should be happy with their unemployment insurance. They shouldn't worry about working, you know? So I think we're going in the wrong direction. Um, you know, it's, so, it's yes. interesting, Michael, that you would talk about the BLS um, uh, and EDD projections for what yes. kinds of jobs are going to be required. What I find interesting is that most of the most of the new jobs, other than the kind of the new creation of knowledge work, right, of, of algorithms and 
STEM kinds of things are all what I would call last mile service jobs, where the implementation of a company's strategy is dependent upon this particular class of workers who is delivering the service. Right. And what I find fascinating about that is that so many management teams look at that as a commodity, as opposed to an opportunity to differentiate themselves in the marketplace. One would think that it would be great to invest in teaching talent how to deliver in a differentiated way rather than saying, okay, how cheap can I get away with this thing being delivered? Because what this pandemic has shown us is that there is pricing power. The worry wow. that everybody had about, you know, hey, are we, you know, I'm going to get these, these, I'm going to have to pay more for labor and I'm not going to be able to charge more in my restaurant is breaking down. In fact, people are charging more to be able to make up for those costs. So, <laughs> excuse me. So I'm, I'm intrigued to get your thought about that, to see whether or not this last mile labor is actually an opportunity for businesses to succeed as opposed to an imposed cost. Well, I, um, I'll be interested in what uh, Lane and Robin think. I'll tell you my experience, Marshall. So for 20 years ago, we started that we had the same view. Could we raise the um, wages of farm workers here in California by doing certain training, um, what we call then career ladders, still called career ladders, uh, skills upgrading. And um, by doing the skills upgrading, could we raise the wages? And we tried it. In, in, for farm workers, we had a number of programs. We tried it for certified nurse assistants. These are the people who provide direct services in long-term care facilities. They get paid enough. So we said, oh, are there ways to improve the services, their skills, a skill approach, and get them to be paid more? And so we tried it there. We tried it with a couple of the labor unions in hospitality. So it was across sectors, wasn't it? None of them succeeded, not one. There is the wages of farm workers, the ag people said basically, we can't pay anymore and be competitive with um, Chilean oranges or whatever it was. The people in um, the long-term care facility said, we can't pay anymore. That's all we can pay. We wanna stay in business. And the same thing with hospitality. So it's an interesting idea. I, I am a big believer in craftsmanship and, and trying to look at these low-wage jobs as crafts where there's real skill. There's no reason to keep um, you know, trying to have people move up from CNAs. What's more important than being a CNA? But you know, <laughs> better to have someone do a CNA job really well. We all benefit. But at least my experience, maybe Lane and Robins are different. When we've actually tried to improve the skills and differentiate and not make it a commodity, it hasn't succeeded at all. Has that been true in, in the industrial sphere? Because I I see in in Ohio and other states where they have training programs, some people have seen significant increases in their income through training. But maybe it's harder in an in industry which is not a traded good sector. Well, and, and if you have direct substitutions from low cost labor countries, that's going right. to be very difficult to do it. But in the service area, like long-term care, for instance, where, by the way, the people who own long-term care facilities are making plenty of money. It's They're not scratching out a living. 
And so there probably is some headroom in there in their P&Ls to be able to to and and it and we're seeing old people like Joel, who is far closer to being put into an old age home than I am, um, (laughs) (laughs) probably be willing to pay a premium for that. Um, And um, and uh, if the if the services delivered are going to be uh, higher quality. But uh, Lane and and Robin, what's your sense of that? Lane, do you want to jump in, Robin, and then I'll go? Oh no, no, no! You go ahead, please. I mean, I think that you know it's interesting that you that uh, we are talking about CNAs because it brings to mind to me the role that so many essential workers played during the pandemic. It was an amazing recognition of the work that that working average working people are doing during the pandemic. We banged our pots and pans for nurses for help. AIDS. We cheered on the UPS driver, you know, driving down the street. We were said thank you to the clerks who were at the grocery store. There was a recognition that these folks are putting their health and their lives on the line. Uh, and, you know, that that they are certainly willing and ready and in my experience, are happy to learn new skills, right, when the employers offer them. Too often, however, employers do not. Employers are competing on wages and are constantly, because they are finding it harder to compete on globalization issues or technology, they compete on wages. And so some of the, we, again, need to have policies and laws in this country which shake up that equation. And I'm gonna put out just a few ideas, right? Uh, in this country, as opposed to in other countries, we demand a lot of our employers. Um, we say employers, uh, you're gonna you're gonna provide healthcare, right? Or we, we don't require it, but that's the system that we've had where people get employer provided healthcare. We turn to that system after World War II we, uh, you know, people's most robust pensions come through the come through the employers. We have such a low minimum wage that even sort of base wages in this country come through the employers. We are leaning on employers to provide a basic social welfare state in this country. We've been doing it for 40 years. That was the model we adopted after World War II. In order to shake things up and get employers out of this paradigm where they're constantly competing on wages. I think having some of these other elements of our social welfare state off of employers' backs uh, and addressing them through through the state, through through government policy uh, would would really uh, shake up our paradigm and actually make us probably more competitive with other nations. Um, That's a different way of doing things. but, um, you know, for too long in this country, we have continued to say education and skills. We've just got to get people educated, just got to get those skills. But in fact, um, you know, there's, there's limits to that if we don't fundamentally think about why employers are competing uh, on wages and driving down wages. Well, that should be a good way to, for you, Michael and Robin, to make your comments as we as we move towards wrapping up. I I, I think the, this is a fascinating um, proposal because um, 
I can tell you, uh, I get to see a little bit because my wife's Canadian. And so we look at what now that my youngest daughter has now also become a Canadian citizen, you know, the fact that healthcare is not a concern and education really, you know, that's why I want my daughter to go to the University of British Columbia <laughs> and not to someplace on the East Coast that will bankrupt us. Um, so, <laughs> so, so the, the, um, so is this a direction that might give us some of the solutions? Michael, Robin, your final thoughts on this? Robin, do you want to say? Michael? Yeah, Michael, you go ahead. Well, I mean, um, you know, Joel, you and I are sort of, I think, economic populists. Right. <laughs> we, we disagree with the liberal consensus, the liberal establishment. And I, I think the pandemic, if anything, has shown the limitations of, um, you know, the liberal establishment. And we'll see what, you know, what direction Bidenomics takes. But um, I do think, you know, again, I come back to these key issues, I think the wage shortage, um, the low wage jobs. Um, obviously, here in California, our small business community has been decimated. Um, and... Um, small business openings as of last week are still down over 50% since the start of the pandemic. So um, yeah, expanding the social welfare state is, you know, it is one element perhaps, but I also come back finally to a job strategy. Right. So much of our focus in California now is on benefits and people should be happy with their unemployment insurance and on guaranteed income now, Joel, you see last week, now that the state government is now funding guaranteed income pilots, those may have a role, but I think as, as we begin to decouple income from work and um, move away from a job strategy, it's always been job strategy used to be the union strategy. Lane, as you know, from the 70s and 80s, it was a job strategy. You know, we had the Humphrey Hawkins Act. Um, it was jobs. Well, we moved away from that. And so, yes, social welfare benefits are important. But I think as we move away from the job strategy and a focus on connecting people to employment and the structure of employment and um, and not reducing that in hours, you and I may disagree. But, um, you know, how we do that, I think that's our challenge going forward. Robin? Yeah. So, you know, I think one, um, so at the beginning of this year, we polled a number of economic development organizations across the country. And um, what we heard from them, and we, we specifically asked, you know, what's keeping you awake at night? You know, what are the issues that are most concerning to you? And it was so interesting because there was such a drastic shift in terms of, you know, previously it was all about business attraction. And when we think about, you know, we, we talked a lot about how policies need to change and you know, what we heard from them was precisely that. They were focused on such different topics in terms of educating them, their employers, um, you know, focusing on those small businesses. I mean, they know that their small businesses were decimated during COVID. And so now, you know, all of their focus was, you know, shifting towards, you know, how can they support their local small businesses? How can they, again, support that um, underlying infrastructure that's so critical for working individuals in terms, again, of childcare and housing, affordable housing and um, you know, so it was really interesting and encouraging to see that shift that they were sort of broadening their thinking in terms of what actually needed to be done, again, to connect employers with employees 
and make sure that, um, again, that they were kind of rising that tide for all of their residents and, and while at the same time supporting, um, you know, not only their business attraction efforts, but also, you know, their. Well, Robin, Lane and Michael, thank you so much. You know, just thinking through what it was, what it is that you've said over this past 40 minutes or so, it's clear that we're, we may be entering a new, a new world, a new uh, labor management relationship. And maybe not, maybe it'll just circle back around to the old normal be fascinated to see how it all plays out, but thank you so much for sharing your, your wisdom with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure. Take care.